It's the Monday after IMFAR, and rather than give you a full summary of every single presentation I saw, I'm going to kind of give you some highlights from the more interesting presentations I participated in and what I took away from it, because you know it's all about me. All kidding aside, Spectrum News sent a slew of people there to watch, listen, and report, and they did a fabulous job. Please go to spectrumnews.org to see a rundown. And I'm going to be honest with you about these early scientific meetings, including IMFAR. I think that this meeting is a great opportunity to learn about new research, and I love that the organization is putting more and more emphasis on diversity and junior-level investigators. These junior-level investigators are going to be the next group of scientists working with families and individuals to improve the lives of people with autism. However, I will say that I do worry that I see the mission of these meetings not only to share new ideas and new thoughts and new findings but to also help get feedback from a broader audience to refine, expand, and improve these findings. So in some cases, I take the findings with a grain of salt. They're very early. The researchers are there to get feedback, to refine their ideas, and even continue the research. In other cases, the projects were considered for IMFAR back in November, and it's now May. In the past six months, some studies have been peer-reviewed, edited, and published, and even reported here on this podcast. In other cases, parts of the studies have been published, reported, and replicated, strengthening our confidence in the results. The long story short is, it's important to remember that sometimes the findings at IMFAR are too early to be taken too seriously, and in other times, they might be provocative enough to open new lines of research but need further study. In other cases, you may have heard it already. So you may be wondering about the title of this podcast, We're Not Gonna Take It. I'll explain. For years, I've been going to this meeting, and if there was no effect or a lot of noise in the data, or if there was no difference between people with autism and people without autism, or things seemed to show a bit of a difference but didn't quite get there, the answer by the research community was always, well, people with autism are different. There's a lot of heterogeneity in symptoms, which means people are different and people have different symptoms. Of course, this is true. As Alison Singer, president of ASF, mentioned in her acceptance speech for the Advocate Award, quote, autism has come to mean not being able to speak to having an exceptional vocabulary, to being cognitively impaired to have a genius IQ, end quote. So how do you understand the needs of people with such wide ranges of differences and make sure that what you're doing to help one group of people with autism is not hurting another group? Well, the answer this year is starting to be addressed, and it was in the form of genetic subtyping. The DSM wanted to include clinical specifiers into their diagnostic protocol to make this more possible, but it's not clear if clinicians are actually doing this in practice. Some people feel, and probably rightly so, that the designation of different subtypes based on things like language ability, age of onset, intellectual ability, severity of symptoms, and other things can be somewhat random and arbitrary. Not that it will be forever this way, but right now, it's just not good enough. So given the progress in genetics and discovery of new genetic markers, researchers are now identifying people with autism with a specific genetic mutation that seems to significantly influence the diagnosis. But it also results in other issues, not just autism. Things like seizures, respiratory problems, and large head size, just to name a few. So in many people with these genetic mutations, Autism is just one of the many issues they're presented with, but a big one. 
For example, people with SCN2A mutations have mutations in a gene which encodes something called a sodium channel. This sodium channel turns on and turns off the activity of a neuron. If you turn on a neuron too much, seizures can be an issue. But not in everyone with any type of mutation. Only in individuals with a certain type of mutation do these people have ASD with seizures. Understanding the type of SCN2A mutation helps define the clinical phenotype. Some mutations may cause autism with seizures. Another type results in benign infantile familial seizures, which are scary, but do resolve over time. Also, in those with mutations of a certain chromosome, specifically chromosome 22, it might be a particular gene called RANBP that influences the phenotype. This is kind of strengthened by, by the fact that environmental factors like thalidomide and VPA also result in decreased expression of this gene. In people with mutations of DYRK1A, everyone with this mutation shows intellectual disability or global developmental delay, speech delays, and feeding difficulties. Most show seizures and about half show autism. They also show distinct facial features. People with DRK1A mutations in autism have a lower IQ and lower adaptive behavior. Their symptoms are similar, but not exactly the same as those without this mutation in autism. Along these lines, those with a mutation of the Fragile X gene, who are also diagnosed with Fragile X, also have lower IQ. But in this case, they have better social communication function than those without this gene mutation. They kind of also have better vocabularies than those without this gene mutation in autism. The same with the P10 mutation. That is, they have reduced IQ function and a motor dysfunction, but their eye gaze is better compared to those without this mutation. So two big questions. What do these genes do and how do they affect the behavioral features and in some cases preserve behaviors like social behaviors? And second, given that there seems to be consistency across IQ, do these genetic mutations represent a specific phenotype all to itself? Clearly the needs of people who are going to have a normal or exceptional IQ are going to be different than those with a lower IQ. And one last thing. Given the improvements in sequencing technologies, how many new mutations are going to be discovered and how many people are going to show these mutations so now they can be grouped and work together? A new effort co-organized by the Autism Science Foundation and a group of patient advocates from organizations that have coalesced meta infar Once these families found out they had a specific mutation that led to autism, they didn't just sit there, they acted. They joined together. They partnered with researchers to address their specific medical issues and help develop better methods of care. They're not only research participants, but they're collaborators. They raise money, they raise awareness, and they empower other families. These mutations include those that lead to disorders like Fragile X, DUP15Q, tubular sclerosis, and those with chromosome 16 mutations. You also heard in a previous podcast about families with the SCN2A mutation. Sometimes these groups have names and sometimes they don't. They met at IMFAR to discuss common challenges. Three of them, for example, are one, patient registries to track who has symptoms, when, and how severely. Second, biorepositories so they can continue to partner with research to share important biosamples like blood and what animal models need to show what validity. And third, in the search for treatments, how can these groups work with pharmaceutical companies or other intervention providers to develop more precise and more effective interventions? 
This is just the start of a commitment of these organizations and ASF to work together to better understand how genetics can reduce the dreaded heterogeneity in autism. Also regarding heterogeneity in autism, it's probably time to realize what is considered a good outcome in one person is not considered the best outcome in another. Or maybe it's good, but it's not the most important outcome. This was evident in the pre-conference about school-aged and adult outcomes. The educational and transition needs are many and they are diverse. And while research instruments capture shorter-term outcomes in the moment of the study, there need to be other instruments to capture more meaningful outcomes. For example, not only do they just have a job, but do they like their job? This is something we can all aspire to. Can they stay employed? Can they stay in school? And what happens in the classroom beyond their immediate improvement in, say, social abilities? Can they translate these social abilities into social function? This is the can-do versus the will-do that Céline Saulnier talked about at the TED Talks. These were just a few things. The takeaway is that people with autism, caregivers, schools, and researchers need to work together to both define and then develop measurements for what is a good outcome. There was so much going on at IMFAR this year. Please take a look at Spectrum News to see all of it. Also, ASF is involved in help writing a policy brief for individuals with autism who have different employment needs. Some studies say that 70% of people with autism are underemployed or unemployed. If that's the case, what should we be pushing for? Not just employment, but for employment with each person that they enjoy and they can stay employed in so they can become more independent. There will be a survey that we want everyone to answer, whether you have autism or whether you are a parent of someone with autism or whether you employ people with autism. And also some focus group meetings and finally the writing of a policy brief which will be informed by policymakers. I'll have a special podcast on it this summer. But for now, it's official and it's underway. Talk to you next week.